That's wonderful. You are right now doing something that is by far the most popular attendance in American life. You're at a worship service. This coming uh, season, there's going to be roughly 18 million people that will buy a ticket to go to a stadium for an NFL game. About 21 million will go to the NBA. About 20 million will go to see a professional hockey game. Added together, that's about 60 million. There are 80 million people in pews as we sit here today. And that's a, um, amen. That's the good news. The bad news is there's 220 million who aren't. And the reasons that people give for not going to worship. You know, worship is supposed to be a refreshing, a cleansing time. And someone figured out, what if we use the same excuses about bathing that we use for going to church? One person might say, I don't go... I don't bathe anymore because I was forced to bathe as a child. And a lot of people, that's true. <laughs> people want you to use soap or only after your money. That's true. That's why they don't bathe. I bathe only for special occasions like Christmas and Easter. That's true. <laughs> people who bathe are hypocrites and they think they're cleaner than everyone else. There are so many kinds of soap. How could I bathe? I don't know which one to pick. I used to bathe, but I got bored and quit. None of my friends ever bathe. I don't have the time to wash, and I love the other one. I'll start bathing when I'm older and dirtier. <laughs> and why people don't come to worship as we are gathered together is because they miss out on so much, and they don't understand what it's about. Jesus loved to worship. We see that in his life. He loved to be with people who loved his Father in God's house. And yet he said some of the most devout worshipers were the furthest away from his Father. As Isaiah said, these people praise me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. As we said, is uh, this great parable, Charles Dickens said, was the greatest short story of all time. And the great theologian, Helmut Tielecki, after World War II, as he was compiling and looking and seeing what the Nazis had done to Germany and, and looking the secular West, he said, this parable is literally the meaning of the universe. And it's not about the prodigal son, as we saw last week. And it's not even about the elder brother, which we're going to look at this morning a little more. It's about the waiting father. He loves both his boys. The one who is far away in another country, parting his brains out, lost, eating with the pigs. And he loves his other son, who has everything there, and yet is alienated in his own house. And as we come together, Bel Air, with the mission that we have, working with these other churches and ministries, and we have to realize as we go into this world, here is the message. And Jesus tells it so brilliantly that God had a great loss, and God cared for the things that he lost, and God will go to unbelievable extremes to recover what was lost. And that means that you and I, likewise, are called to love people we'd much rather hate. Aren't some people easy to loathe? <laughs> some people are really gifted at loathsome life, and you and I would much rather hate them, because they're not on our side, they're not on our team, than love them. And Jesus gives us a spiritual wedgie with this parable. That's a biblical term. But anyway, okay, as we move ahead. The father is waiting, his heart is aching as deeply for his son in the house as he is for the one that's far away. And he says, pop the best champagne, kill the fatted calf, it is time to celebrate. Now, what's the context of that? You got your Bible. Let's turn open and take a look at that again. Turn with me over to Luke 15 on page 850 and starting at verse 1. There are many people that we would rather hate than love. 
But Jesus reminds us that it is the God who suffered the loss, not us. Look at verse 1. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling, saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. Pause. What's the whole thing about this eating? Because eating is a sign of being in relationship with somebody. And he is hanging around with the prostitutes, with the unclean. His disciples, they are so out of it. They couldn't, they couldn't even pray the Shema if they wanted to. They don't know Torah. They don't know Talmud. What are they doing? And Jesus hears this grumbling, and so he tells this story. So he told him this parable. Which of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the pen in the wilderness and go after the one that's lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Well, you see what Jesus is doing. He is getting us to understand a parable is a picture book. It's a snapshot of reality. You can't push a parable too far. It's broad brush like an impressionist painting. And yet you see what he is saying. One day a man had 100 sheep, and the sheep, one of them got lost. Remember I said, how do sheep get lost? They nibble themselves lost. They're just kind of eating and look up, ah, lost, just keep eating again, you know, totally lost out there. And the owner said, wow, and he left the 99 and went and got it, put it on his shoulders, and came home and celebrated. And Jesus said, I tell you in heaven, the angels are parting over people that are found, not those that don't need to be found. Of course, you see the irony with that. There are no 99 righteous people. You see what Jesus is saying to them. And then, he goes with, and then he looks at them, and they have that glazed look on their eye, kind of like you have. So he tries another one. <laughs> Verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search diligently till she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, they're in joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I remember, a, we said a parable as we study these this coming season is both to reveal to the interested, but to conceal from the half-hearted. It opens the curtains of reality to God and to who we are, to those that are seeking. But to those that are just going, yeah, that's a cute story, it closes the curtains. Because this is a sifting process. It's not just a clever illustration that's going along. But Jesus is trying to tell them, come to me. And remember when he told the parable we read last week in Mark of the four soils. When they came to him, he said, to you has been given the secret. Why to them? Are they special? Yeah. The only special makes them special, they came and said, Rabbi, what are you talking about? And he said, I'll tell you. And how often do we sit and we look at life and we look at God and we go, hmm, that's curious, heavy. And never come to God and say, Father, what are you doing? What is really going on here? And it's trying to line up. It's a picture. Jesus is a master storyteller. There we have about 35 parables. Luke has the most, 24 of them. Ten of them unique to Luke, like this in the Good Samaritan. I forget what age it was that our children, I think they were infants or toddlers, and when they're looking in the mirror, and one day, oh, it's, it's a wonderful experience. They're looking, and they look at the mirror, and they see a baby in the mirror, and, you know, they kind of, they either try to hit it or lick it or something, you know. 
And one day it dawns on him, that's me. And then it begins a love affair with the mirror for the rest of their life. <laughs> and this is what Jesus is doing. We're listening to his story, and all of a sudden we go, Shazam, that's me. And we are both the prodigal son, the rebel, and the elder brother. And the prodigal runs away, and he insults his father and takes his inheritance. And we know the story we saw last week, and he destroys his life. And he said, what the stupid am I doing? My father's servants eat better than this pig gruel. And he goes back, and the father sees him and runs. And he goes into this speech, and the father says, stop. A robe on his back, a ring on his finger, shoes on his feet. You're here, and the father's heart is just bursting with joy. And someone else's heart is bursting with rage, the elder brother. And the elder brother comes up and he sees that this father who has done so much, asking of the elder, and he's done everything the father's ever asked. The younger brother wanted to get away because he couldn't stand the old man. Do this, don't do that, do this. He said, I want to live my own life. We found out last week you become less yourself the further you get from God and the more of a beast of the field we become. The closer we get to our creator, the more we become like him. But likewise, the elder who knew so much about the father and yet was so far away from him, he had it all, but it was the same as being nothing. And he comes up and there's this parting and he says to the servants, what's going on? They said, your brother. And he thinks, my brother, you mean loser boy? He's come back and your father's celebrating. And his son, the elder says, are you kidding me? As Shakespeare would have said, oh, foul day, oh, dark stench of betrayal. I do all this, and this is what you do for him? We've been asking our drama department to do different genres of these parables, a different story of the story. And if Shakespeare did the elder brother, it might be this much. Deceive me? Rosalind. I pray thee. Does that Demetrius, my father's son, my younger sibling? Oh, dearest Malcolm, what joy have we? I, tis your brother indeed, returned from the sickle's reach. A many year hath he strayed, but now our dear Demetrius is home once again. Happy be Malcolm, my dearest beloved kin. Why is your cheek so pale? Blood flows but from the head to the heart. Oh, faint not, my brother. Oh, happy fair, come join father, so that three may delight together. He left with much, yet returned with but so little. What of thee, worn-out old soul? What tales have you to bring? Thou art a scholar. Speak to it. I pray thee, recount such tales of loss and haste, fables of squander, 
Sagas of waste. Speak to it! My soul has been pierced! Shall I too be betrayed by thee as I have by mine own father? Darker hour can a man bear than this, betrayed with a kiss. Thus now do I depart and take leave, retreat, to set up my eternal rest. Pray thee, my Malcolm, haste to thee go. Wish ye not to cheer Demetrius's return? Oh, speak, my son, speak. I charge thee to speak. Why retreatest thou from such jubilation? My honored father, my hallowed sire, why disdain thee thine eldest son? Lo, have I not given you the sweat of my brow? It is for thy favor that I have toiled away my youth. I never will him have I disobeyed your command. What say thou? What of my acclaim? Not even a goat have you slaughtered for me, nor given me a feast such as this. Pray thee, my son, this will be spoken. What of that son, that behemoth of disgrace? He squandered your wealth, he abashed your repute, he has blemished your name with the beggar and the whore. And yet on his return, you offer the fattened calf? I pray thee, my lord, why should I gain such mockery? Oh, my precious firstborn, listen to me now. Nothing hast thou done to earn my contempt. But think thee thrice on such things. Thou art mine own, mine cherished heir. All that I have, all that I own is thine forevermore, is thine alone. Listen, my son my regarded, my blood. Eternity is yours. But this moment is for that one. Thy brother was dead and is now alive. He was but once lost, yet now again is found. That's the whole rub for all of us, is that not only do we not like those people, we don't want God to like those people. And that what Jesus is saying to all of us here, that we are both the prodigal as well as the elder son. And some people, as I said, are just hard to love. I mean, they do things that are totally against us. They do things that are so despicable, and they're hard to love. And I'm always saying, God, they're hard to love. And he says, I know, Mark, but I still love you. When we take a look at this and we realize that the early Christians, it's fascinating to me. The news, Jesus didn't say, repent for hell's about to swallow you up. He could have said that. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's not so much how much horror that is coming for those that reject God, and yet it is also true. God is a just God. He will not be mocked. But the good news is that God is on our behalf and for us. 
And that is even means we must even love our enemies. Jesus goes so far. Even the ones that we stand against what they do, that we must be for them. Isn't it interesting that Jesus, and even the early church, my goodness, if anybody could have been on the Christian talk shows slamming a culture, it would have been the early church hammering the pagan Roman Empire. I mean, the decadence, the burning to death, what you are doing right now under different emperors, which we studied when we were going through church history, at best you would be fined, at worst you would be imprisoned or killed, burned alive for the games at night for some of the local procurators because you were such insurgents against Rome and wouldn't worship Caesar. And yet it's funny, Jesus, though he's hardly in favor of Rome, is kind of nonchalant about the whole thing. What he's concerned about, because he knows Rome is passing away, like all civilizations and societies. What he's concerned about are those who harden their hearts so much within the house of God that they miss out on this thing called grace. I think you and I live in the most angry age, perhaps in millennium. Everybody is ticked off about something. And you don't even need to be on the 405 to experience it. <laughs> the other day, I ordered a meal, and someone must have said something to the wait staff because she basically said, here's your food, take it, and get, just get out of here. Kind of like, like, and God bless thee somewhere else. Take thee farther away. There's just this anger that is out there about everything. We who are conservatives, and I consider myself an evangelical, I'm also a, a, a Republican. I mean, I voted a lot Democrat. In fact, the only time I vote, it's whatever is the opposite of Carolyn. We always cancel each other out on every vote. <laughs> but, you know, why are, why are we so mad? I'm old enough uh, at uh, 55 that I can remember back in 1976, Newsweek had on the cover, The Year of the Evangelical. In 1976, Newsweek, as well as Time, said the most dominant influencers of this culture were the evangelicals, politically in the marketplace. And look at this in 2009. If the word evangelical is ever raised, it's always either mocked in some film or on some television sitcom for some crazy Christian. And so we watch the very world that we built falling apart before our eyes. The world is awash in alcohol and drugs. And we're mad at the abortionists. And we're mad at the homosexual agenda. And we're mad at the secular materialists and the way they mock us and offend us. And Jesus says, you're right, and tells us this story. Do you begrudge my love for them? You bet we do. You bet we do. And Jesus is saying, that's part of the trouble. If you are a conservative like me, and I, I'm definitely, as we stand against this mainstreaming of pornography, how do you reach out to them? But I'm convicted. When's the last time? You know, today, at, or this coming week, whenever it is, the adult convention coming here. Remember we had the gentleman here from Triple X Church? They will take down a bunch of bright pink Bibles, and on the cover is this cheesy 1970s guy, and it says, Jesus loves porn stars. He will give out 10,000 Bibles. And all the porn actors come in, the adult and they get it, and they go, what is this, kind of a parody on the Bible? And he goes, no, it's a Bible. You want one? And they take him. He'll give out thousands of them. He doesn't say what they're doing is all right. He just gives them a copy of God's word. When is the last time we who are conservative, and I'm so against abortion on demand, when's the last time I took an abortion doctor 
to lunch and showed concern for him or his family as a person? When is the last time an evangelical church said, I'm going to care for the gay community? Not agree with necessarily the agenda of what's going on, but care for them as people. When is the last time we did anything in the sense of like for three centuries, the early church just simply loved the other side? And that's why that became a Christian empire after all those years. And if you're liberal, when is the last time you were kind to somebody waving a flag, standing outside protesting at an abortion clinic? If you're liberal, when is the last time you took somebody out to lunch, even though on their bumper sticker they said, I listen to Rush Limbaugh? When's the last time you did that? (laughs) And the point being, it's not that these issues aren't serious, but Jesus is trying to say love is always as beneficial, maybe more to the lover than the receiver. You don't have to agree, but chill on the rage and the anger and the upset. God is sifting just as he said. And he has said he has called us to come alongside and to care for the poor and to care for the needy, whether people deserve it or not. It's what I call severe compassion. If you ever look up severity in the dictionary, it says unnecessary extreme. When you do something severely, it's it's unnecessarily extreme or an extreme intensity. And we, if we show this incredible compassion to the people we would rather hate, Now again, it's easy for all of us because we can relate to both these characters in this delicious story, but it's about the Father, it's not about us. Jonah, remember the whole story of Jonah wasn't about the fish, it was about the hated Assyrians and God told him to go preach to him. He says, I know you God and if they repent, you'll forgive them, I'm not going to do it. And that's the whole point of the story. Remember Jesus in Matthew, one of his parables? A guy owed the master $10 million. The master forgave him. He went out to the street, a guy owed him 50 bucks, and he choked him, and the guy said, forgive this debt, and he said no, and he threw him in prison. We know the point. As much as we have been forgiven, how can we not forgive others? And it's not a valve. You don't just all of a sudden say, wee, I like that person now. It's the process of saying, I choose not to strike back, and I pray and I wish for their welfare. I'll tell you a case of extreme compassion. This is the fifth anniversary of an event that took place in New Sweden, Maine. It's about 100 miles from the Canadian border. Little German community farming. Of course, they're all Lutheran. And they were gathered together one morning for worship and after worship. What do you do? You have coffee. I mean, we have coffee because it's nice. To Lutherans, it's holy water. (laughs) And so they were having the coffee and they had a swig and it tasted kind of bad. And they thought, but you know, it's church coffee, you know, and they choked it down and some started to feel really sick and really ill. Some of them started to throw up and some of them broke into a fever. Two of them died. Many were sent to the hospital and they were trying to figure out what it was and then someone thought the coffee and the police came and someone had put arsenic in the coffee. Who would poison their coffee? Well, a gentleman three days later by the name of Donnie Bondsman, who was a member of that church, committed suicide and left a note saying he had poisoned the coffee because he was so angry because they were having a fight over worship styles and a new sanctuary. And he wanted to kill them. Here's the compassion. At his funeral, the entire church showed up. Showed up. 
prayed for his extended family and him. And the reporter asked, and they simply said, we don't know what was going on in Donnie's life, but he is still part of the family of Christ, unquote. That kind of compassion. Even someone who poisons you, you say he's still in need of the grace of God, and we stand by this family. This is the kind of liberation that God gives. You know, some things you have to experience in order to appreciate it. And if you're here this morning and you're just checking out this Jesus thing, kicking the tires, and, and you're looking at us kind of scratching your head going, I think I understand it. I was talking to somebody a little bit ago, and I was telling them about Christ, and they said, well, Christianity is a crutch. I said, it's not a crutch. It's an entire life support system. What do you mean? <laughs> not a crutch. It's like, it's not that I can get along. It's what gives you life and breath. You're lost without him. And you're trying to understand that the same thing is for many of us, though, that have been good boys and girls. And Jesus is not mocking the goodness of the elder brother at all. What he's pointing out is, yes, you did right. But don't you realize what you have? You don't realize how far away this one was. Anytime we have one of our Muslims shared and they discover that Jesus is not just the prophet but the Savior, or some of our Jewish friends who will be coming for the high holy days here tonight, and when they discover that Yeshua is their Messiah first and the Gentiles second, and they say, and I love the Muslim, so many have said, you have no idea, Mark, when you put your head on that pillow at night to know you are forgiven. You have no idea what that's like. To know that if you stand before a holy God, he will welcome you. That freedom, it is not good news, it is great news, they always say. And we should rejoice with what the Father wants. I remember the, if it doesn't happen to you, though, you can't understand it. Some things you just got to experience. And from the outside, it seems weird. I remember when at school I first found out about the facts of life from one of my friend's older brothers. And we all gathered together out there, and uh, he told us how it happened. And we went, really? Really? And we just thought, that is so disgusting. We took a vow never to... Never to talk to a girl as long as we lived. Ever get right there. And that was in college. And uh, it was, no, no, no. Not so. But, you know, I can say, after being married for 30 years, it was a pretty cool idea God had, I want to tell you. And so, and this is the thing that we don't understand. To forgive these people, to love these people, but they're so wrong. And God says, absolutely they're wrong. Now go love them. And you work for that. You give that grace. And you celebrate with me. It's, by the way, it's about me. It's not about you. You're here for my pleasure. And every time you please me, it's to your advantage. I'm not some far-off God you hold off at arm's length. I'm the Father who wants to love you and put my arms around you. That's why Paul could be dumped into these stinking holes they call jails. And be, he get dropped down here in the smell of the human stench. And the Romans, if they condemned you to prison, very often it was the same as a death penalty. You died before you ever made it to court. The conditions were so horrific. And Paul gets dropped in. And what does he do? All of a sudden he hears this singing. He goes, you on the right, you take the high. You on the left, take the low. Isn't God great? And they think, he's Meshugana, he's nuts. And he was. He was nuts in love with a God who loved him that much. So we leave here today, and we go out into this city, into this world. Quit letting yourself get all wound up and ticked off like the rest of the world. It's going just as he said, the wheat and the tares. 
Start loving the people that are hard to love and say, God, I can't love this person. And I don't even imagine you love him. But let's try it together and see what the Lord can do. The crazies don't win. God sorts it out. The idolaters and the secular deceivers, they don't get the last word. Christ comes back. And in the meantime, we have a mission. Amen? Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we thank you that you extend your grace to us in here, many of that have walked with you so many years. That same grace that you extend to the prostitute down on Ventura or to the crack addict down in South Central, God, to the murderers that are in gangbanging out there that you love and call to, Lord, that same grace is available to your daughters and your sons that have been walking with you and pleasing you for so many years. Lord, I pray that you would help us to share in your joy and your riches and your wealth and the Lord to work hard and to tell others about the Savior. And God, as we come before you now with our tithes and our offerings, I pray that you would bless the gift and the giver alike, that Christ might reign more fully. For his sake we pray, amen.